welcome to another episode of Out the Gate, your podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show, and today's guest needs little introduction to anyone who's ever perused the sailing section of your local bookstore or library. Lynn Pardee has co-authored 12 books with her husband, Larry, with whom she also sailed for decades, circumnavigating twice. First aboard their 24-foot boat, Seraphin, and later aboard the 29-foot Talison, both engine-free wooden cutters that they built themselves. Their philosophy of go simple, go small, go now has inspired and enabled many cruisers to throw off the dock lines and realize their dreams. Larry passed away in August of last year from Parkinson's, but Lynn has continued sailing, and she and I had a wonderful conversation in which we covered a lot of ground, or should I say ocean. She shares stories of San Francisco and Baja California, tells me how her approach to sailing has evolved and what stayed the same, and continues giving great advice for how to get out there and get out there now. So with no further ado, Lynn Party. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself first? Not that you really need introduction to most sailors. I could start out by saying that uh, I ran away with a sailor when I was 20. Up until then, I was a bit of a desert rat. I grew up on the north end of the San Fernando Valley, and sailing was the farthest thing from my mind. But one day, I thought, I'm bored with all of the guys I'm dating. They're all these university types. They're all too serious. I want to laugh more. I want to get out and do something different. I'm going to buy a sailboat, which was a joke because I had $200 in the bank. (laughs) I guess that's more like $2,000 today in some ways. But on the first day when I went to look for a boat, I was introduced to Larry, who was playing pool. The owner of a skip, uh, big schooner had a boat for sale. And when I went to look at it, he took me out for drinks. Let uh, me stop you for a second, because what made you think, I want to have more fun, I'm going to buy a sailboat? Had, it sounds like you hadn't been sailing before or didn't do much sailing growing up. What, what spurred that idea? Well, two things. Up until I was five and a half, my father had had a sailboat in Michigan, Detroit, Michigan, a little 13-foot old town sloop. And I do remember he looked so happy when he was sailing that boat. And I would have looked happy, but I used to lay down for a little nap next to the centerboard while we were out sailing, and I'd fall asleep, and I'd wake up, and my dad would be carrying me up to the cottage. (laughs) So I just think... I think those memories might have spurred it. But the other thing is that um, across from my desk in the office of Big Bob's Big Boy Hamburgers headquarters, where I was learning to be a computer programmer, there was a picture, a beautiful photograph of a big schooner. And Mm. I stared at that for eight months. And I think it's just that subliminal uh, thing. And when I mentioned to one of my coworkers that I was thinking of buying a sailboat, he says, Why don't you call the skipper on the schooner? He might be able to help you out. Gave me the number of the skipper on the schooner. And the schooner was owned by the president of the company at that time, Bob Wine. 
And so I called the skipper and he said, come on down. I've got one for sale. And they had 85 foot schooner and they had this little eight foot boat called Scamp, a little wooden sailing dinghy. And they wanted to sell it and uh, get a slightly bigger one. So he says, come and look at it. And I went to look at it, went out for drinks, met Larry. And three days later, I moved in with Larry and Larry was building a sailboat. <laughs> and your fate was sealed. My fate was utterly sealed. On our first day, he showed me his loft floor where he'd drawn out this 24-foot test cutter, but he'd drawn it out full size so he could take patterns. And uh, he sat me in the cockpit and said, um, you sit right there. He says, this is the sides of the boat. And he walked along and he says, and here's the bow. You're sitting in the cockpit, remember? And then he looked ahead and he says, and out there is going to be an eight foot long bowsprit. And he stretched his arm out. And it was like you could see this dream emanating from him. I fell in love. Yeah, I just, yeah, I said to him, wow, today has just been wonderful. It's been like a real adventure. And he said, stick with me, baby, and you go a long way. <laughs> and he lived up to it. He definitely lived up to that. So my story started there, and I helped Larry build our 24-foot sailboat. We saved up enough money to, he was a professional skipper, yacht skipper, and uh, boat building was his hobby at that time. And together, we saved enough money to set off to Mexico for three or four months from Newport Beach, California. Four months later, someone asked us to deliver their boat up, back up to California. And we came back a month later with enough money to cruise for another six months. I've just described 45 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's dive in a little bit and get some more details. I'd love to hear a little bit about what the scene was like there in Southern California when you started lofting up and then building this Lyle Hess design boat. You must have been amidst a lot of sailing characters. It was just like Steinbeck South, I swear. Uh, it was, it, at the time that I came to Newport Beach, I had been living in the San Fernando Valley. I come down to Newport Beach. There was only 28,000 people lived there in the winter. And there was seven yacht yards around the bay, rough and ready. Most of the people around the bay worked on boats it was where many of the Hollywood actors had their yachts because Marina del Rey didn't exist at that time. It just started to build while we were building uh, Seraphin. Most of the sailors we knew worked in the profession of maintaining boats, skippering boats. And there was a lot of people dreaming of going cruising, but not the numbers that are today, of course. But most of the people to go cruising, they had to build their own boat or rebuild an older boat. Fiberglass boats were just starting to happen. You couldn't borrow money and buy a boat at that time because to borrow money, you had to be able to insure the boat and most insurers would not insure a home-built boat or an older boat. They were reluctant even to insure bigger professionally built boats because it's hard to determine replacement cost. Mm. So that meant you either found an old boat and fix it up or you built something yourself, boats tended to be much smaller because of that. Uh, a 35 foot sailboat was considered a big cruising boat. Larry was skipper on a 50 footer and that was, a, that was a pretty standard charter boat for eight. Yes, at the time. 
Yeah. It's a different time, but I have a little San Francisco link. One of the things that sustained our boat building, I used my accounting skills and I helped do accounts for a bunch of small businesses around the beach, boat building businesses and surfboard businesses. They were just, you know, everyone was making custom surfboards at the time. One of the surfboard companies asked us if we could help them. They needed to deliver a whole pile of surfboards to San Francisco. And they said, we'll pay you the, the delivery fee. We've got a trailer. And Larry and I said, why not? We need a break. And so we set off with, I think it was 50 surfboards and uh, got to San Francisco. And the person who was supposed to receive them wasn't there that when we got to his office. So we said, well, where are we going? We brought along some sleeping bags and we, we had our little, we were towing the trailer behind our truck, which had a really rough little camper on it. So we said, uh, where are we going to sleep for the night? And we found a place in Sausalito that had a little, had a parking lot and there was a sort of rough and ready little marina there called Cass Marina, which some people might still remember. Oh, yes. I, yeah. I'm no Cass's quite well. In fact, I'm involved with a little community boating center that ah. um, Mary Gidley, who was married to Cass, is also is on the board of and is helping start up. Well, Mary might remember this. So we parked there and we were trying to find someone to ask permission. Couldn't find anyone. So we walked out the dock and there was this little boat shop, walked in there, asked where's the owner and uh, Someone said, oh, they're in the shop and on a boat. And he was working on a boat. So we just climbed on board this 30-foot sailboat, little wooden boat. The person who was on board said, here, grab hold of the back end of this. And Larry took, and he was taking a little marine head out of the boat. So Larry's pretty soon working away at it. And I'm sitting and watching them and handing tools over. And Mary Gidley comes in. I didn't know her name at the time. And sits down and pretty soon she and I are chatting about all sorts of interesting things. And a few minutes later, she says, how do you know Cass? And I said, who's Cass? And she <laughs> says, Cass, do you know these people? He says, nope, but I figured they knew me. <laughs> we end up staying with them for two days. It was delightful. Oh, that's wonderful. Mary just wrote a memoir um of her time sailing with Cass and I I've had her on the show on the podcast so oh that's that's great I love how these worlds come back on each other and and that is so much what cruising is about isn't it yes yes it is pitch in help each other if you can and you make a friend every time <laughs> I love it did you ever find yourself sailing into San Francisco Bay? Yes, uh, twice uh, we had some very good times there with two different boats. So when we finished our first circumnavigation on Seraphin, which took 11 years, uh, she had no engine uh, and that always interests people. 24 foot, four inches long, nine foot beam, sailed like a little witch, a real light wind sailor. But we came sailing into San Francisco on our way to complete our voyage in Newport Beach. We'd gone east about, so we were coming down from Canada. We spent a winter sailing around in San Francisco Bay. No, a minute, that first time we didn't. The first time we came and just enjoyed the bay for a month. And we had a little bit of adventure when we were leaving that others might relate to. We caught up with several friends. We anchored outside of the marina area in Sausalito a lot. 
but then it was time to leave. And everyone had told us that Santa Cruz Harbor is a really neat place to stop, but you got to be careful that there's enough water on the bar. In the time before cell phones, went ashore and called the harbor master and he says, we just measured the bar, there's 14 feet of water, not a problem. Set sail the next day and there was a storm brewing south of us and it was throwing a lot of swells up. And when we got to, I think it's called the onion patch or... Potato patch, yep. Potato patch, well, onions, potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was, we just weren't making the headway and we didn't think we'd get in uh, before the storm, so we turned back. And we went and anchored off of Angel Island and it blew in from the southwest. I mean, it was nasty for three days. Mm. So on the fourth day, fair wind, all's looking better. We set off, had a relatively nice sail down, but a bit slow because there wasn't a lot of wind. Uh, missed the last of the tide to go uh, into Santa Cruz and it was getting dark. So we anchored in back of the pier that was there. The next morning with the last of the incoming tide, we lined up to sail in. We're sailing along pretty nicely, almost inside the breakwaters and all of a sudden the boat stops and I yelled Larry and I'm on the helm I yelled Larry we're aground because all of a sudden the tiller was just loose in my hand and Larry says we can't be aground he rushed back and just then I saw a wave coming overtaking us and I rushed and I pulled the canvas cover over the companionway hatch a wave just swept the whole boat and she was inside the harbor pushed her into the harbor oh. well, we had sand inside the boat. I was not a happy girl. Had sand the length of the boat. Oh. But we got in, went up and spoke to the harbor master. And he says, well, it silted up over the last couple of days. He says, you wouldn't believe how fast it silted. But if you want to get out, you got to get out tomorrow because we don't have a dredge booked until May. Now, this is November. He very nicely did take us out in his boat to sound the deepest channel to show us the way out it looked like there was just a, a couple of inches more water than we needed if we caught the high tide. But at that time, because of the way the bar had formed, you had to go straight out and go right through the surf. And then you had to lay on a beam reach right in, in front of the second break that had formed for about 200 yards. And then you had to jive and go back out again. So we thought about that for the night, woke up in the morning, ready to go. And there was one other boat that wanted to get out and they were, a 30 foot uh, double ender and they wanted to get south. So they agreed to go first because they had an engine. Problem was when we woke up, our dinghy had been stolen. And so there's a mad rush. Fortunately, everybody in the harbor went searching and found it that some kids had borrowed it and were fishing out of it. <laughs> and this is a half hour before I died. But long story short, we headed out, got ready. The wind was behind us. Larry says to me, do you want to take the helm or do you want to handle the spinnaker pole? Because we're going to have to use every bit of power we have to go through the surf. So we watched the other boat go out ahead of us. And when they hit the breakers, which were only about three feet high, but you know, definitely break, their bowsprit went 20 feet in the air. And it was really dramatic. They flopped down the other side and they were just under power. And then they rolled madly on the beam reach and then turned out and they were clear. So we said, they're an inch deeper than us, but you should be okay. So we go running out and I'm on the foredeck. We hit the surf line. And because we had about 15 knots of wind 
holding the bow, you know, holding the sail way up forward. She barely lifted it all. We got a tiny bit of water on the deck. Larry says, you're driving now. I had that pole down faster than you've ever seen anyone drive a pole. Then we went on to a beam reach and then I got the pole back up and we got out. The harbor master had accompanied us because he said, I can't tow you. I don't, won't take that responsibility, but I'll be right alongside you in case anything goes wrong. And he stayed right there. When we got clear, he gave a huge cheer. About 200 people on the breakwater who were watching gave a cheer. He waved goodbye to the harbor master. He turned back in his little 14 foot powerboat, got swept by a wave and sank. Oh. <laughs> that was our story of San Francisco. <laughs> wow. That is quite a story. I've taken up too much of your time with that story. I know, no, I love it. I mean, it brings up so many questions. And before you had mentioned, people were always very interested in the fact that you sailed without an engine. And in fact, I have to say, a couple of listeners have said to me after I did uh, some podcasts talking about electric propulsion on boats, they said, well, why don't you talk about no propulsion on boats, boats without engines. I said, well, as a matter of fact, I think I'm going to be talking to Lynn Party soon. So we'll talk about that. But just that story illustrates how carefully you had to think about every move in and out of a harbor in particular. Can you talk a little bit about that? How you think sailing without an engine changed your perspective or how you planned, how you thought about landfalls and heading out of harbor? Let's just say that when I look back at my sailing life, especially based now, I'm cruising and voyaging on a boat with an engine now uh, in my, I'm 76 right now. And for the last four years, I have been on a boat with an engine, but up till then it was always engine free unless we were delivering a boat. I would say that the reason that I enjoyed cruising and Larry enjoyed cruising so much that we continued doing it for most of 45 years together is that we had no engine. It kept it constantly being a bit of an adventure or as Larry used to say, cheap thrills. Uh, (laughs) It meant we had to be thinking all the time and we had to work together as a team. We We never anchored in a new place without planning our way out in case we had to leave it. We had on the chart, mark the danger points, mark course in and out. It meant that we hated when someone said, or I particularly hated, whenever we'd meet someone, they'd say, well, you can't sail there because you don't have an engine. Now, the reason I hated it is that was like a red flag to a bull. Larry'd say, oh, yes, we can. And we'd have to sit and figure out how to do it. Like going into Tel Aviv, everyone used to say it was impossible to sail in and out of Tel Aviv. We sat outside the breakwater at Tel Aviv for 11 hours. The first we did, we hove to, launched a dinghy, Larry rode in and out a few times, and I rode in and out to see what the challenges were. And then in speaking to a sailor who was sailing out in his dinghy, uh, he mentioned that the wind tended to clock late in the afternoon, be about 15, 20 degrees further to the south, which meant it would be an easier beat into the harbor. So we waited and he was right, we got in. So it was a case of always something new to learn. There's very few places that we want to go that we didn't. We even sailed up uh, the 
uh, rod their breast up the rivers to the walks. But no, we could not do much ditch crawling. Rivers, you know, had to be wide or tidal, so we could, you know, use the tide to help us. But it added adventure and it added an absolutely clean bilge. You had a 140 bottles of wine stored in the bilge because there was no oil in the bilge at all. <laughs> it was a different adventure. I loved the teamwork and having to sit and plan and each of us working together. And we learned Larry's motto was cover each other's butt. So we learned to back each other up and keep sharing any potential problems we saw coming up as far as the sailing. And we never entered strange places at night. It necessitates that knowledge that you talk about and the patience, I would imagine. Well, I think one of the funniest things that happened because we sailed without an engine is that when we ended up in Argentina, we were decided to go around the bump at the bottom of the world on our second boat, Taguasen. We arrived in Argentina and during our first week there, the Argentinian economy collapsed and things were going very bad in Argentina. And one of the other sailors on the dock happened to work with a newspaper. And he said, can we come and interview you? Because we need something to put in the newspaper that's not completely negative. So we were interviewed and that led to radio and television. Everybody wanted to talk to us because we were the only good news happening in the country. Well, we got invited onto an all night talk show. I speak some Spanish, Larry's Spanish is quite minimal, but a friend we'd made said, I'll be your translator. So we go along and it's going along very interesting and enjoyably and our my Spanish is better than I thought and Larry's Spanish is not any better than we thought. But a listener calls in and says, so what do you do when you're becalmed and there's, when there's no wind at all? And Larry pipes up before we can even think, es tiempo por el amor. It's time for loving. Well, the phone rang wild. And the next day, I had to take a taxi to bring my groceries back from a store. And the man says, oh, you're on that Canadian boat. Your husband must be really sexy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, he, and he refused to charge me for the taxi ride. He was so interested in finding out how sexy Larry was. <laughs> I love it. So that shows you who listens to all night talk shows. Taxi drivers. <laughs> Lynn, I'm astounded by the detail of your memories. Is that just a trait you have or would you attribute that at all to your writing? Because that's something I want to talk about. I have always had a very good memory. That's why I got top scores on tests, even though I didn't learn a thing in school. And I love storytelling. I just so enjoy it. I do keep a little logbook, but it's only a half a page a day. I've kept that for you know 60 years. Yeah, but I do I do enjoy it, and people have often remarked on the fact that I'm very good on remembering details. How many books have you written now? You and Larry wrote Cruising and Seraphin. Was that your first? That was our very first book, and it's led to altogether, I think, twelve books. Wow! Uh, and I've written done some others for non-sailing. And we've done five videos, and now I'm working on, a, on two more at the same time. But the writing came into our lives a bit later. I didn't start writing until Larry and I had been together for five years, and we've been cruising for 
I think a little over two years when I wrote a nasty letter to an editor because I disagreed with something I read in his magazine and he just wrote back, prove it. And we were in Panama at the time. And so that's when the writing started. Do you think if you hadn't been sailing that you would have picked up the pen and, and written? I love books. I've always loved books, but uh, I never would have thought of it. But once we were cruising, I found myself writing very long letters to my mother. We uh, had had a somewhat of an estranged teenhood, and um, that was my way of sort of trying to make contact, and it led to a very nice friendship later. But she kept writing back. She says, you tell the best stories, just like when you were a kid. But how much is true? Because she couldn't believe that we were anchored in front of the president of Mexico's house when I wrote that. The cruising adventures were so far beyond her, she, she thought I was making them up. She said to me that, you know, gosh, you have a real knack for writing, but I thought that was mother speaking. Yeah, so no, writing was a complete surprise to me. But then after that letter to the editor, you started being published. I couldn't believe it. Um, the very first article, he, he wanted me to prove that there were small boats out cruising and that people could have, that it was an affordable thing to do. They didn't have to be rich because the article I had objected to said that the perfect cruising boat was 57 feet in length. Only a few Spartan souls have gone in boats smaller than 30 feet. That's what the article said. And we were surrounded by boats that were, there was a 17 footer just arrived from England in the Panama Canal. And there was the biggest boat in the whole Anchorage was 35 feet long. So, and there were 17 boats there that year, which was a huge number for the Panama Canal at that time. So things have changed a bit, but there's still people out there in their 22 footers and their 30 footers. And that's what I'm still writing about to try and encourage people to realize you can get sailing affordably you don't need a 45 or 50 foot boat. If you want to get going, you'll go in a 22 footer. Yeah. And it's not only the length of the boat, but the bells and whistles. You and, and Larry were, were such proponents of keeping it simple Yep. and going. Larry coined that phrase for our first book. He says, you know, your whole book, Lynn, that you're writing, it's just trying to say one thing. Go small, go simple, go now. And so that became the motto. It's a great, great motto. I mean, there's always something more to do, isn't there? Are you talking about refit time? <laughs> <laughs> refit time or excuses yeah, to keep you at the dock. That is the problem. I, I tell people, nobody wants you to go cruising. Your parents don't want you to go because they'll worry about you. Your kids don't want you to go because you won't be paying attention to them in the same way if you got teenagers. Your boss doesn't want you to go because he'll have to train someone to take your place. The Marine Chandler definitely doesn't want you to go because he'll stop spending money. Your friends don't want you to go because they'll miss you, of course. But also, if you go and do something that's really following your dream, they have to look at themselves and say, why am I not doing something? So it's hard to get away. Yeah. yeah. So many forces. Learning to feel comfortable with the boat you have and learning what are the absolute basics that have to be right. It's hard. There's so much clutter out there now. It was easier to go cruising 50 years ago because there was almost no books. Nobody telling you you needed much. And there was nothing to buy. The average person 
couldn't afford two-way radios. And if they could, they were ham radios. And even those were quite expensive. You had to make your own harness. You had to make your own man overboard equipment. There wasn't the push to buy. It's a fight now. I'm, I'm just doing a complete rewrite of the book, The Cost Conscious Cruiser. It's still available as a Kindle, you know, just to make people realize not a lot has changed. I'm updating it carefully. And I have made a list of what is recommended for an offshore sailing boat by West Marine. And of course, they're trying to sell things, but it's what their seminars presenters tell people. You know, we're talking, if you took a new boat and started outfitting it to the list of 118 necessary items, which don't include the food and pots and pans, you're talking $65,000 cheapest to just outfit a boat you've bought off the shelf. And yet mm. I'm just interviewing and getting a questionnaire out to people who are out there cruising right now on what they consider a limited budget. And that's, you know, people on budgets from 800 a month to 4,000 or 5,000 a month and saying, which of this equipment do you have? If you just use the same brand new buy it off the shelf dollar figures, I've got just got two questionnaires back from couples who have only spent 8,000 of that 65,000 and they're out there cruising for two years. It's just, you know, an example. So that's why I'm rewriting this book. Yeah, there is this, <laughs> trap that people fall into. I mean, a little bit of knowledge is a, is a dangerous thing and a lot of knowledge can be even more dangerous. Uh-huh. It can be paralyzing because you feel like you have to check every box, have all the latest gear, safety equipment. Okay, safety is something you learn, not something you buy. People use the word safety on equipment to sell it to you. It's like motherhood. To be brutal Comfort and safety do not equal freedom and adventure. There is some risk you have to take. At a certain point, you have to say, I'm ready to climb that mountain, and I know I could die if I don't do it right, so I'm not going to do it wrong. But so few people get into real trouble offshore. Once you've got a decent boat, how many boats actually sink offshore? The boats that sink tend to hit rocks. So rocks are the danger, not the sea. I know I'm sounding, I'm sounding hard nose. I don't mean to. I just, I, I just think that uh, vendors are propagating fear. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. It's really important to keep that in mind, particularly when everywhere you turn, not again, not this bad to have knowledge, but people are selling all kinds of things from gear to seminars to, and there is at some point, you just have to get out there as we were saying. On the other hand, I'm curious what you think of people, you know, all these YouTube channels now inspiring people to, and there's a boom right now, people buying all kinds of boats, just like they're buying RVs and going out and, uh, adventuring with the shakeup from the pandemic. I'm curious what your reaction is to people seeing YouTube videos and saying, oh, that's what I'm going to do. Well, with- thank God there's dreamers. Uh, but I've watched it, you know, I, I've helped a few of the YouTube people get their uh, information and uh, 
keep a little bit of an eye on a couple of them because they become friends. I sure am glad I didn't try to do what they're doing. Do you know how hard it is to make a new video every week? Yeah. Wow. But that's not cruising. That's working. Uh, but uh, I think you're always going to find people who think it's either easier than it actually is. But in order to be a sailor, you have to go to sea. That's Larry's favorite comment. And the problem is, I think too many people are filling their heads with knowledge and not taking the time to go sailing. They get a boat, they spend so much time working on it, they don't go out and try out all the new ideas that they put on it or learn to sail it without, so they decide if they really need it. That's something I do worry about. I really think that people shouldn't outfit their boat until after they've gone sailing for a while. You can sail all the way to, to Mexico with almost nothing. And then when you're in Mexico, you'd look at yourself and say, well, what was I desperate for? Well, maybe I could install that now. That's so Sorry. funny you mentioned, it's so interesting you mentioned that because just this morning as I was, I was going for a run and I was thinking about, okay, I just want to, I, I just want to head out into the ocean for a couple of days, you know, do a shakedown, go overnight. And I was thinking, oh, but I don't have this yet. And I don't have that yet. And, but no, it has to be the other way around. You have to go out there and figure out what you do need. Yes. Well, think about it. You need a sound hull. You need a rig that's going to stand up. You got, you need a way to steer the boat and you need some water and some beans and a dry set of clothes and an extra, uh, and some foul weather gear. And you can go out for two or three days. People go camping with far less than that. Yeah. Then you come back and you say, well, what didn't work right? Do, you know, what am I desperate for that I absolutely have to have? You know, we did our sea trials. We were racing every week to get out there to make sure that we sailed the boat. That way we couldn't tear it apart so much that we didn't use it. So yeah. everything that got added to the boat, there's not one extra screw hole on Talison, because when we put something in, we knew we needed it and we knew how, where we were putting it and how it worked. We'd wire it in temporarily and see if we really liked it. Uh, that's us. Not everybody's the same, but I'm just saying, I hope people don't get caught up in the, you have to have it trip. Right. Yeah. I'm really so, glad that you mentioned that you can head off to Mexico from California with 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 not very much because one of the things I did want to touch on I was just looking through cruising in Seraphin and and you spend a good amount of time on Seraphin in the Sea of Cortez around Baja California you may have in Taliesin as well I I don't know but I was curious about your memories from that neck of the woods I still think it was my absolute favorite cruising ground it's you know right up there with New Zealand which I love we cruised there for almost a year on Seraphin, right through the summer heat period and a Chabasco or two. And then we went back on Tallison and uh, we also drove down in our truck when we were back touring in the United States one year because Baja California is gorgeous. And the Mexican people always made us wonderfully welcome. I miss mariachi music. Live mariachi music, there's nothing like it. Six o'clock in the morning when someone's having a birthday party and the trumpets sound out across a little harbor. Still makes me cry. I'd go back there in a minute. I just couldn't tell you. I had so many wonderful adventures on both boats in Baja California. I can't wait to get down there. I have to say, I, I interviewed a family that um, on a catamaran and they headed off to 
go cruising and ended up spending 10 years in the Sea of Cortez because they just loved it so much. I'd like to, before we go run out of any time, there is one little San Francisco story I want to tell. Oh, please. When we came, sailed into San Francisco on Talison from Chile, we uh, went to the, um, what's called boat show, the, uh, at that time, the Jack London Square Boat Show and did a fundraiser for sailors with disabilities. It's called BADS in San Francisco area. You may have heard of them. Sure, they, st- they still exist. And we did a fundraiser and Bob Bitchin put a, you know, helped us a lot on that. And the people with disabilities, the whole group pitched in and we had our boat there at the show. And we had a blast. It was really fun. And afterwards, we were interviewed on a podcast. We left the boat in Algometer for the year to do some other things and then came back and we were back at the boat show. And this really handsome mother of an eight-year-old youngster from Alameda came up to us and said, thank you for introducing us to sailing because we never could have afforded to go sailing if it hadn't been for you. And I thought, oh, they've got a small boat and they're out cruising. No, what had happened is she said, I knew absolutely nothing about sailing, but I drove across the Bay Bridge every day to go to work and saw the sailboats down there. And I used to listen to podcasts. And we're talking back in 2006 when podcasts were quite new or 2007. She said, and I just put on a podcast about you because it said sailing on San Francisco Bay. And she said, and you talked about the fact that even if you don't have any money, and she says, living, you know, as I do trying to raise a kid on my own, she was a woman of color and, you know, from Alameda. And she said, uh, I'm, I'm quite skint for money. But you talked about the fact that if you want to get out sailing, there's a free sailing day with bads once a month where anyone can go. And she says, now my son and I are out sailing every week. And she says, it's a wonderful group. Well, um, I haven't been in touch with the BADS group. I'm saying, here, I'm talking to San Francisco. Got to remind people, it is such a worthwhile way of getting yourself out sailing and helping people with disabilities get out sailing. So that's my little San Francisco story for the day. That's great. I'm so glad that you, you told that story. It is a wonderful group. I will see if I can find the, the website, their website and put it in the show notes. They're still going strong. And there are ways, bads and other ways in San Francisco to get out on the water without having to spend a lot of money. As I mentioned before, I'm involved in a community boating center in Sausalito that's trying to get up off the ground. I know there's a community boating center in Alameda Good. Um, that Cami Richards of Pineapple Sales is very involved in. Oh, and there's Cal Sailing at the Berkeley Marina, which is a wonderful way to to very cheaply get out on the water and they have lessons. Yeah, we got to get more people out just enjoying the fun of sailing. And right now, you know, Larry has left my life, as you know. I say I've lost him, but that sounds funny because I actually know where he is. But when he passed on, I met a wonderful Australian sailor uh, who has a 40-foot steel boat. And an engine, he was just completing a circumnavigation after 12 years when we met. And I, we've been sailing together for the last four around Tasmania and Australia and back here to New Zealand. How, talk, and, can you talk a little bit about, can you talk about how uh, so many changes in, in how you're sailing, not, you know, 
who you're sailing with, the kind of boat that you're sailing on. I'm really curious about how that transition has gone for you. I mean, if from hearing you talk about it, it sounds quite smooth, but I, I can only imagine there must have been difficulties in, in, in all those changes. I mean, obviously in losing Larry, but in, in going continuing sailing, but in such a different way. Well, I would say Larry faded away gently, thank God. Uh, he was ill for about altogether 10 years, but we sailed together for the first three of those. We were still cruising. It just, I had to take more responsibility. He developed Parkinson's and then Parkinsonian dementia, but he was always gentle. And my friends and neighbors where we have a home base were wonderfully helpful during the last years. And I got extremely involved in publishing books for other sailors and that kept my mind as full as can be. But during that time, Larry bought me a little Hershoft 12 and a half bullseye. It's a little keel boat, but it's only 15 feet long so I could sail myself. So sailing was always part of those years. David sailed into my life. Uh, he wanted, someone introduced us because David had a copy of Storm Tactics Handbook on board and would like to have it signed. We came, got, had drinks, long story short. We, he invited me to sail around New Zealand with him. So you ask, what about the transition? There was another crew on board. We had a wonderful time. David and I really enjoyed each other's company. He's a university law lecturer, specialist in world heritage law and a campaigner to save barrier reef from development. So interesting things to talk about. Absolutely different than Larry. He's a professional pen pusher. Uh, will fix things if he has to, but a bit rough and ready compared to an artisan I'd lived with. David loves sailing, but he loves adventuring even more. He's more of a mountain climber, adventurer type. So very different, which made it enjoyable. The boat, completely different. 40 feet long, powerful engine, a doghouse with uh, spray curtains all the way around. I call it the greenhouse. <laughs> I'm 75, well, I was 72 when I met. My skin did like being fully protected from the weather. I will say that. But soon after we were sailing for the first time all on our own when our crew left and we were headed north along the southern, south, uh, east coast of New Zealand. We got out there for four day passage and uh, it was a bit rocky rolly and I was on the helm. You're running wing and wing and I noticed that the surfboard on the foredeck was a little bit loose. Called David up from where he was down below and I said, David, would you take the helm? I wanna go tie the surfboard a little more securely because I tend to like rigging and tying things up. He got in the cockpit and he said, look, you're new to the boat and you, you might not be steady on the foredeck. I've got a bad knee. So he said, how about I go and do it? I said, sure. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not too ego driven. And so he climbs up on deck and starts to walk forward. And I jokingly yelled, don't fall overboard. And he laughed, turned around, came back to the cockpit. He says, Lynn, as a matter of interest, what would you do if I fell overboard? So I looked up at the sails and what we were doing. And I said, well, I'd do a slam drive. I'd leave there on a, on a beam reach and I'd get the hole down. And then I would start, then I would do, I'd wear a ship. And he says, hey, wait a minute. How about starting the engine? 
<laughs> of course, I hadn't even thought about that aspect of life. It didn't even come to my mind. <laughs> so, so, so yes, I had some adaptations to do, but he's you know he's so it's been so easy to sail with. We almost never have any question. You know, we got into some pretty heavy weather leaving New Zealand. I stupidly didn't turn a light on when I decided to find a can that was rattling. When I got out of the bunk to find a can that was rattling, um, the boat lurched and I was thrown across the boat. And at the time I didn't know it, but I'd broken five ribs and had eight fractures in my ribs. Oof. And the problem was I had reached for a handhold that wasn't even there. It was the wrong boat completely. I was just 23 years on one boat and now on a boat that's completely different and set up for someone who's six foot two and on four foot 10. I couldn't reach the handhold that was there, but there's now a handhold where I want handholds. But long story short, David thought nothing of saying, Lynn, do you want to go back? And I said, no, I'm not going to give up all the ground we've made. I'll be fine. I said, why don't we just heave too? And he says, well, walk me through the steps. He said, and all my time going around the world, I've never had more than 35 knots of wind, except for a couple of short squalls. He said, we're now in 40 knots of wind, just step, you know. So because he doesn't have that heavy ego, made it easy. That's great. But I do miss a boat that sails in really light winds. And I've bought a big diamond drifter for this boat to add to the wardrobe. And David's in love with the drifter. And we're sailing, doing more sailing and less motoring because we have that big nylon sail. And that's my favorite sailing is I love it when the boat's moving three or four knots over a glassy sea. Mm. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer because I know you're going out sailing this afternoon, yes. but I did want to quickly ask, what are your sailing plans after obviously this immediate uh, afternoon sail? And then is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you care to mention i i think i think i've been a little bit long-winded today i hope i haven't bored anyone but uh, we have uh plans to sail do some exploring around new zealand waters because larry and i said let's sail the rest of the world because we can sail around new zealand when we're older and see it right now until other countries are more comfortable opening to cruising sailors we're going to sail around new zealand and then we have dreams of sailing much further afield. Uh, we've got some pretty interesting plans, but I don't like talking about where we're going to do because then you get trapped. If you don't do it, people say, oh, you failed. Yeah. So I'll just say that we have some lovely sailing plans. Uh, this summer it's New Zealand waters down around uh, Taronga and around the Mercury Islands and uh, up to as far as the north end of New Zealand. That will keep us, there are so many islands to explore and friends to catch up with. I'm looking forward to that. Well, Lynn, I totally respect and admire that philosophy and so much of your philosophy throughout your years of sailing. I could listen to you talk about your adventures for hours. So don't worry about being long-winded. I really appreciate the time you've spent. Thank you very much. And I hope, 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 fingers crossed, that if COVID and everything's in control, 
to be be at the couple of boat shows in the U.S. Maybe do some lectures around the U.S. in 2022. But, oh, it would、uh, be wonderful to catch up in person sometime. Yeah, San Francisco is definitely a favorite place for me to visit. We'll talk more.、Time. Well, happy sailing, and today and further afield, and thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you, and hi to everyone I know in San Francisco. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find the Bay Area Association of Disabled Sailors, or BADS, the organization Lynn was talking about in the interview at baads.com, and you can find Lynn online at partytime.blogspot.com or on Facebook and Instagram by searching at Party Lynn, and you can find Out the Gate on Instagram at Out the Gate Sailing. Or you can always reach me directly at outthegatesailing@gmail.com. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show, and until next time, smooth sailing.